Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, the great mystery of being, awakening, liberation, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm excited to be speaking once again with Tina Rasmussen. Tina Rasmussen, PhD, began meditating at age 13 and has practiced in the Theravada and Tibetan Buddhist traditions for over 30 years. In 2003, she completed a year-long solo retreat, was ordained as a Buddhist nun, and became the first Western woman authorized to teach by renowned meditation master Pau Auk Sayadaw. Dina has been studied by the Yale Neuroscience Lab and is the co-author of the book Practicing the Jhanas, as well as several books on human potential. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that asks the question, Can People Really Change? with Tina Rasmussen. Tina, welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. It was such an amazing and fascinating time the last time we talked. I just felt like there was so much more material that we could dig in on. You know, you're such a fascinating teacher and have such a broad practice background. I immediately wanted to dig in deeper and broader on a bunch of topics. So thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. I really enjoyed it too and felt like we could have talked about so much more. So this is our chance. Exactly. So this has only been a few months since we spoke. What's been going on in the meantime since the last time we talked? Well, I've done a number of retreats, which has been lovely doing them in person. You had the chance to do them in person. I did. Oh my gosh. I've done several this year in person, a two week and a another one week. And then earlier in the year, I did a one week. So it's been so lovely being with people in person. And I think for all of us, at least I'll say for myself, I didn't realize how much I missed that and how nourishing and satisfying it was to be with like-minded people in an environment where everybody's contributing and it's relatively free of conflict and we're all growing together. And I think all of us realized how precious it is to be able to do that since we haven't been able to. So I just loved it, and I'm hoping to do more of that next year. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with Omicron in the wings, getting ready to come on stage. Yeah, just like you, having done approximately one and a half billion retreats over the years, (laughs) it's been such a fascinating journey to learn how to do them online. Yeah, What a change. I'm just so used to being in person. The only pre-training I had for the COVID was in the Shinzen world. He often does online retreats or like mini retreats over Uh the weekend on the phone. And so I'd done a few of those and even taught a few of those. So we've all gotten really good at both teaching and taking Zoom retreats or online retreats at this point. Yeah. See what's good about them. You know, it's nice to not have to fly somewhere or go through all that rigmarole. On the other hand, as you're saying, it's just so amazingly deep and powerful to 
be in that shared physical space with everyone and close it off, make the sacred space closed off from the rest of the world together as a group, right? It's really yeah. got its, its magic to it that I've really missed. It's nice that we have both options now. I think they both serve a purpose. Yeah. yeah. Good. So were you teaching those retreats or taking those retreats? I was teaching them. Do yeah. you mainly do a self-retreat now or when you do your own? or do you When I do my own, own, I do some self-retreats. I do some via Zoom. So I've been on the participant end of the Zoom retreats as well and can appreciate all the good things about that as well as missing being with people in person. So yeah, I've yeah. done both. What were you teaching on, if you don't mind talking about it? There's a few main things that I'm teaching these days. The first is called What is Awakening? So in that teaching, I'm teaching about awakening as well as teaching the four categories of practice that are sort of the cornerstones of my teaching at this point and our categorizations of neuroscience that use these four categories, which are heart-based, focused attention, open monitoring and self-transcending so that, you know, that would equate to the, the Brahma-viharas or Bodhicitta for heart-based, Samatha, Shamatha for focused attention, Vipassana for open monitoring, and then for self-transcending practices, Chitta-nupassana and the Theravadan or Rizokchen, Mahamudra. It's only a week, so people get a taste of the four categories and how they fit together. And then I talk about awakening and how it's understood in different traditions and give people a chance to connect with their own flame for awakening and feel into that in a way that it can be supportive for their deepening. So interesting. Now, the question that leaps to mind is, how are you defining awakening? For me, essentially, it'd be a taste of regpa or wake awareness, no matter how brief, but some kind of taste of that completely non-reified awareness. I'm curious, is that the basic definition you're using or something different? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I go through different traditions, how they see it. And then when I've done all that, then I get to my take on things. Not that that is the sure. answer, but it's one way of understanding what you just described. I would call that a taste of awakening. To me, awakening that is more of a state that doesn't reverse. Yes. You know, so that to me is another way of understanding awakening. I like the Theravadan four stages, although I've, I've kind of simplified them into something that's a little more modern. But to me, awakening is when consciousness sees not only that there is awakened consciousness possible as an experience, which is more the taste. It's like I am having an awakened experience. So there isn't really a shift of identity in that so much as a deepening of the potential of one's consciousness. Whereas with awakening, the first stage of awakening, the way I talk about it and understand it, is at a point when the person actually realizes that the ground is what they are. And yes. the identity shifts from the me to that. And there's a seeing through the ego self as a mental construct. People can still go back into identification with the ego self, but there isn't really a belief that that's what one is anymore, that mm -hmm. the, the ground becomes the identity and the ego self is a delusion. 
Yeah. And then there's further deepening. I've used the Theravadan four stages for simplicity's sake, but you know, there's some percentage of the defilements and the personality pattern that get thinned out or fall off at the first stage, but it's not anything close to 100%. So really that journey after awakening of embodiment and continuing to work with the personality material is in some ways a harder and longer journey than awakening is in a way. And in a lot of ways, much more important. Right. I think historically in the day of the Buddha or the other historical traditions, they didn't really understand the mechanics of the psyche and how it worked just from a nuts and bolts standpoint. And so there wasn't really much understanding of how to work with the psyche after awakening. And, you know, this is where monasticism became a solution that most traditions used extensively because then people wouldn't have as much chance to get triggered in ways that could cause harm. For most of us nowadays, we're living householder lives, so that potential with money and sexuality and, you know, um, ownership of things, all of that, all those things that can trigger basically our survival instinct, our sexual instinct, or our social instinct, those are still there and they can get triggered all the time. So how do we work with that psychological material off the cushion instead of just relying, you know, on the meditation only as a way of working with that material? Yeah, which does, of course, help, but it's not really the most effective method necessarily because there just wasn't that much time spent developing that end of it, as you said, especially the earlier traditions. I think later on, they started looking into that to a yeah. certain extent and working with it more, bringing things back into the world more. The certainly huge part of the tradition is just, well, we're not going to be involved with the world anymore, right? And so right. that just cuts off the possibility of that problem. But that's a completely different life than the kind of life almost all of us are living. So exactly. I can hear the hints of like a structure behind what you're saying there. So I'm curious, how would you go deeper into that question of the psychological end of development? Yeah, well, to me, that's really the gift of our era. And, you know, I feel like we're also fortunate to be living in an era the last hundred years where we actually have some science around the, how the psyche is constructed and how to work with it through psychology. In an abbreviated sense, there's different kinds of psychological material. We have the psyche being constructed of, if you want to look at it from a more modern view of self-images, beliefs, defense mechanisms, things like that. And those then can be seen through conditioned habits and undigested material. So habits, you know, just the way we're used to being and doing things. And in a lot of ways, when we try to change those, it, it just feels foreign. And there's so much momentum behind the ego self that even if we see that it's causing suffering, it's still hard to change them. Even if we know that when I do this, I suffer, it's, it's hard to change. If it was easy, no one would be suffering. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Don't we all wish that like now that I've seen this on the cushion, you know, I can see that as I'm sitting here in the meditation hall and the person next to me who every time I sit 
long enough, the person next to me breathes too loud and it bothers me, you know, and yet we can't stop our own suffering from that just by noticing that everywhere we go, there we are, you know, with our patterning that's causing sufferings. So how do we work with that? And then at a deeper level, the undigested material that's painful and, you know, most likely overwhelming at the time that it happened and the psyche couldn't deal with it directly. And so it turned into defense mechanisms, personality patterns, and other things that when we start trying to let go of those, it's scary. It's scary to feel those defenses being gone because we've relied on them as a protection. This is where actually doing therapy, trauma work can really be helpful as a supplement to spiritual practice, in my opinion. Yeah, and how would you see that working as a supplement in that case? Gosh, we've learned so much, you know, in just the last few years about trauma and how it works with uh, spiritual practice, both spiritual practice being able to digest some of that, but also can re-trigger it. So we want to be careful that that isn't happening. And this is where the trauma science that has come out in the last 10, 20, 30 years and that new methodologies and modalities are being discovered and studied scientifically can really bring specific tools to trauma in particular that the spiritual path you know, we don't have things necessarily that are specifically designed for trauma at a certain level. So, you know, sometimes if I'm working with somebody, I'll refer them to a trauma therapist or, or tell them that I think it'd be really great supplement to work with a therapist, maybe even not a trauma therapist, just a regular therapist, depending on what is going on for the person to work it at a psychological level that would be more extensive than what, say, Buddhism could offer. It's so interesting. So much of trauma is expressed in the body and is somatic. And a lot of modern trauma therapy is somatic therapy. And it's really interesting to see how some of the practices that are more embodied, more tantric and embodied, like breath work practice or visualization Mm -hmm. in the body practice, from my own personal experience and also in my teaching experience, some of those things can really help with trauma. But other times, they can really interact with it in a really unpleasant way. Yeah. And at least it's very clear when that's going on and sending someone or recommending that someone work with a somatic therapist in those conditions is really, really helpful. Yeah. But I feel like some of the more embodied practices, again, maybe energy or breathwork practices do actually help with trauma. Yeah. If they're done gently. On the other hand, there's so much material that I have that everybody has that isn't trauma. It's just regular old neuroticism and (laughs) and hangups and ways we get triggered and unconscious material. What's so interesting about that, I think, is that it works both ways. Like, as you were saying, people, when they feel those defenses drop, can get really scared when their psychological defenses drop. 
And yet that fear is much less if they've already had some awakening, right? Because the sense of having something to defend is really quite a bit less. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like it works in reverse as well. When the psychological defenses have been really calmed down and made a little less hair trigger, what we often see, I certainly saw it in my own case, I see it all the time with folks, is that as they approach that initial moment of real awakening, there can be tremendous fear, right? Because there's a sense of annihilation or a sense of I'm going to disappear in some way before they let go of the identification with the thoughts and feelings as self and let go of that, that the thought and feeling ego self is signaling with everything it's got. (laughs) I'm so afraid I'm going to die. I'm going to die. That kind of thing. Right. Right. That doesn't always happen, but you certainly see that happen. And so my experience is that sometimes it's just a matter of really gently touching that a number of times till it sort of opens and lets go. But other times there's some real psychological work necessary to make that a little more comfortable of a transition. Yeah. Yeah. There's sort of an existential fear that can happen at that threshold. And I even see this with Jonna. So even though Jhana is an awakening, it's the same kind of process that people experience with awakening at a state shift level, because the me is sort of seeing that it's not needed and it's trying to do its job, which is to protect us through defense mechanisms and and these other things. So, you know, it's kind of a weird thing because if we try to use force, it's really a surrender that's happening with awakening. And we can't muscle our way through that because that's all coming from the ego. So there has to be a ripeness from like from inside to actually let go. Enough trust, enough room, and enough, as you say, ripeness to just let go. Now, do you find it's the case that sometimes it's just a matter of people, almost like exposure therapy in a really gentle way where people get near that and maybe get scared and get near it and maybe get scared. But after a while, enough times and nothing bad has happened. I mean, they're afraid, but nothing bad actually happened that they can just like relax and open and let go into it. Yeah, there's something that has a lot of integrity in the process where generally people will approach that or have tastes like you were talking about, tastes of awakening or approaching something like jhana and fear will come up. But then when they really see and they let it land that nothing bad happened, that it was okay, then the trust increases within them where they're not having to take someone else's word for it. You know, the Buddha or us or, you know, someone they know who is farther along and they actually start feeling trust and feeling more that what they are is their deeper nature and not the ego self, not the personality. So it seems like a very natural and compassionate process most of the time where people, because their trust is increasing from direct experience, that letting go can happen inside if they really let it land. You know, and this is where I think being around other people, having a teacher who who can really encourage that landing to focus on the part that is relaxed and that knowing our deeper nature as what we are is the safest place to be because 
one can feel the indestructibility, the unconditioned quality that isn't subject to conditions. Yeah, those Vajra qualities where it just cannot be hurt in any way. Right, right. right. Yeah, and when one has repeated contact with that and really lets it land, then it's natural to have a relaxing of the ego structure and for that absorbing to happen in a way that is natural. Now, in a completely anecdotal sense, what have you found therapy-wise that seems to work best for the types of people who are coming to you for meditation instruction to help them open up to their practice a little more deeply? Yeah, well, I think there's a stage before therapy, and that to me is the place where everybody can do more. I mean, one of the most common questions I get, and one of the things I love working with people with is, is there something they can do in their practice off the cushion with their personality material? And one doesn't need to go to a therapist to do that. We can do that on our own. So that's a place to me of a lot of leverage. This is one of the things I think that's been beneficial for me about being in the diamond approach, because it's really a path that's been designed for householders and integrates the psychological. So I sort of take a very generic version of the process that's used there and help people work with their material by looking at what are the patterns happening on the cushion. Instead of we just seeing it as well, it's all empty, so it's irrelevant. If we actually start looking at the patterns, we can see most of us have like our top 10 hits you know, it's planning, <laughs> it's fantasizing and anxiety, you know, or whatever. And if we really start looking, the contents will change, but the tune stays the same. So that starts getting really interesting because clearly there's a defense mechanism or an identity. You know, it becomes obvious what the building blocks of the ego self are. Our practice will show us that right away. And if you really want to see it, do the Samatha practice because it'll show you in glaring relief what your patterns are. So once we know that, you know, a lot of times people just find that frustrating and aggravating, but actually it's a good thing because these are running all the time under the surface. You know, and meditation lets us see them so we can actually get curious about them and see them off the cushion. One of the side effects is it's helping you see those really, really clearly. And that might be annoying during your meditation. As you're you're saying, it's great information because those things are running under the hood the whole time. Exactly. Yeah. This is where the inquiry process from the diamond approach, which really, in my view, it's a version of Vipassana, but it's got more to it than that. But, you know, if we just hold that as something similar, if we come to those patterns and see them in our life with openness, with curiosity, not with self-judgment, not with the inner critic, you know, if we can back that off so we can just be curious about it, we can start really feeling into what's going on with that. How did it get there? You know, most of these patterns got laid down between the age of zero and five or six. And then the superego came in and just basically reinforces us keeping those patterns in place. So if we're not working with the superego, it's unlikely that our ego structures are really going to give it up. 
because the superego is always running under there unconsciously trying to reinforce them. So it can really help to work with the inner critic directly, the superego. But, you know, we can start seeing where in our lives are these same things happening and getting curious about what's going on there and feeling how painful it is, but also having a lot of compassion for ourselves for why it's there. And like something like anger, you think, why would somebody have anger as a personality trait or defense mechanism? Because it's kind of unpleasant. But if you really get curious and start using inquiry on something like anger, like if there's a situation where a person's being triggered, like maybe their neighbor's doing something they don't like. If you really feel into it, instead of acting it out using, you know, of a Vipassana type inquiry, feeling what it's like, it kind of feels good, you know? Oh, yeah. Anger can feel really nice. <laughs> Very energizing. Right. <laughs> Right. I get to feel really self-righteous because what they're doing, anybody in the world would say it was wrong, you know. And also, I don't have to feel powerless because maybe I can't actually do anything about it. So I get to feel that I got some power here. You know, I can feel powerful inside at least, even if I can't change it. And maybe even a little bit superior because now I get to judge them and feel self-justified about judging them. I'm feeling better just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're kind of getting into this, aren't we? <laughs> but yeah, that's part of it. You know, temporarily it feels good, but in the long term, especially if we act it out in places where then afterwards there's a lot of regret. Oh, yeah. You know, it's something that often people do regret. So that's a place to just, okay, if I'm triggered, can I just sit here and feel it, feel into what's going on? Okay, how does this remind me of something earlier in life that I encountered all the time that is what is getting triggered? And to start really taking it, opening it up so we're not on autopilot or acting habitually. And then these things can start getting digested over time. I mean, for me, it's been exciting throughout not only my 15 or I guess 16 years now as a Buddhist teacher, but the 25 years before that, when I was working with people in the business world as an executive coach, helping them to change. And it's like, I get asked this, maybe you do too, in Buddhism, people come to me, can I really change? And they sometimes wonder if it's really possible. And I believe 100% the change is possible. How about you? What have you seen in your years as a teacher? Do you believe it is? or Absolutely. I mean, if it wasn't possible, why do any practice at all? You know? Right. The point is, of course, there are things that we accept or we have equanimity around. But not only can we, of course, get very, very deep insight into our own natures, but as a consequence of that, we can begin to deeply affect how we behave, how we feel, and so on. And if that wasn't possible, and if I didn't see it every day with people, I would be teaching something else. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, people do sometimes feel like it's too slow or they get discouraged. And this is where, to me, coming back to these four categories, that I talked about. I love that Buddhism 
has four different ways of working with even something like anger. You quickly summarized those, but why don't we go ahead and actually dig in? Because that's a really interesting system that you're bringing up, these four different types of meditation. And how would that affect, like, let's say, if we were trying to work with anger or something? That's really Yeah. Yeah. And I love this. To me, this is part of why I love Buddhism and feel that it's so relevant for us as modern people and what we're encountering every day in our lives. It's extremely practical. So like the heart-based practices, if we were applying that or using that as a tool for something like anger, we might feel into ourselves and how painful it is actually to feel the anger, even though there are some enjoyable things about it as we discussed. But really underneath that, usually there's hurt or powerlessness or maybe even fear under it. And to then have some compassion for ourselves, for why that's there. Why is that defense mechanism there? Because it's worked in our lives, especially whatever was going on in our family of origin. This was a way of working with those feelings that helped us be okay in our environment. So there can be some compassion for that for ourselves. Or if it's the other person that is doing something that is bothering us, maybe we apply loving kindness to our relationship with that person or even equanimity. If it's something we can't say something like, you know, that's going on in the world that's beyond our capacity to directly affect, the equanimity practice might be helpful. So that's the heart practices. And then with the samatha, with the focused attention category of concentration, where say we're on the cushion and we're running over this thing that's really bugging us over and over and over in our minds and we're just suffering every time that we think of it. You know, the other person involved isn't suffering at all. We're the ones suffering. So in the samatha practice, like if the breath is our object, we're breaking the compulsiveness of that thought pattern by just coming back to the breath. And if anger is one of our top 10 hits, that synaptic pathway that is the anger pathway that we've run over, you know, 3 billion times in our consciousness, it's a really thick synaptic pathway. You know, it's like a deer trail that gets traveled all the time. And if we just start breaking the compulsiveness of that thought pattern by coming back to the breath, we're actually making a synaptic pathway that's smaller and increasing the one that's going to the breath, which is neutral or positive. So we're actually rebuilding, restructuring the brain, physical level. That might be a slow and steady sort of method, right? That might take a while, depending on how many times and how intensely, because the intensity matters, we've triggered the anger. We're going to have to, through shamatha, have something similar in terms of the amount of repetition of calming, right? So it might take a little while, but it's definitely effective. Right. Well, and it gives us at least the option if we're ruminating to stop and go, I don't have to do this. I don't have to spend 10 minutes ruminating. It breaks the rumination cycle. Yeah. So, you know, that's what the samatha, the shamatha is doing, is building our capacity to turn away 
instead of just ruminating over and over and over about it, we might still get triggered. It takes a long time, like you said, to not use the pathway at all, but having a sense that we don't have to go there. You know, that's what we learn on the cushion is that, yeah, I can build a capacity to not go there, to stop yes. myself. And then with Vipassana, you know, open monitoring category, we're actually being with it and learning how to feel the anger instead of maybe suppressing it into our unconscious and then having it leak out. Let it in. Feel what it actually feels like instead of the concept of anger. Feel, okay, my chest is hot, you know, and I feel like I'm going to explode and I'm having a hard time sitting still. You know, whatever it is that's actually coming up, being with it directly, and usually it's going to rise and pass like everything if we're actually with it. So to be able to start opening that up and also feeling how painful it is. I mean, this happens in the Samatha and in Vipassana to feel that hot coal that the Buddha talked about of really getting how painful it is instead of just being on autopilot with it it can increase the motivation to change it. The way you're defining these categories, I think you are trying to keep them in line with the way they're studied in neuroscience research and so on. I'm curious, however, when we talk about Vipassana or Vipassana, we would traditionally often want to go beyond simply just sitting with it and noticing its phenomenology as you're describing, but of course go much deeper and notice the impermanence and the no self qualities and perhaps the emptiness quality of it. Is that something that you tend to steer people towards? Yeah. And that's really the way that I frame it, at least, is the last category of the self transcending practices of really being either having a deeper taste of our deeper nature that is beyond that, that can see and experience directly and perceive the emptiness in it. And not be identified with it because of that. I mean, in the Vipassana, Vipassana, you know, in Tibetan, we can see the emptiness as well. But to me, the self-transcending category of practice is really where that becomes the most obvious. Interesting. Okay, I see. So you're putting it in the fourth category. Yes. These are somewhat arbitrary because, of course, all of what's happening that I'm describing bleeds over from one category to another. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, but to me, all of these are ways that we can be with something like this and our on the cushion practice can really translate into off the cushion. If we're following the off the cushion with a spirit of inquiry, where we're really trying to understand and open it up rather than just saying, I shouldn't be feeling this, I'm a good spiritual practitioner and letting our superego run the day. Because all that really does is push it back down into the unconscious. Yes. Now, something I'm really curious about how you're teaching it is in the long run, there's a big difference between how some of the early traditions talked about these emotional features and how the later traditions talked about it. I mean, if we look in the Theravada tradition, it seems all the difficult emotions are supposed to go away entirely. At least that's how the description reads. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the later practices, Vajrayana and so on, the full palette of emotions are still available for expression completely, but the nature of that expression and our relationship with that expression is 
utterly transformed, right? Mm -hmm. And that seems like a pretty different goal. How do you mm -hmm. land with those? Yeah, well, I think from a psychological standpoint, the idea that, for example, anger would never arise. It seems impossible, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem very realistic. Lesson? I think that's realistic. Sure. You know, but to have it be gone, I mean, the way I hold it, say, with like in Theravadan Buddhism, even in Theravadan, with the stages of awakening, they don't really see those kinds of things going away until a very advanced stage. Sure. But even that it's there as a goal, I mean, at least written down, it says you will never feel anger again at the yeah. final stage. Honestly, that just doesn't even seem like a good goal. Well, those are the kinds of goals that lead to a lot of repression. I agree. Which then leaks in other really, really painful ways that we've all seen, you know, yeah, no, through I scandals and, and other things. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think to have that as a goal, I think it's unwise to have that as a goal. Well, this is where, you know, I think at least from what I understand, we both lean more from a view standpoint to a Vajrayana view of where everything is included. We're not really trying to get rid of anything. Everything is seen as the ground. But there's still, to me, a place of looking at harm and looking at you know non-harming action. Like for something to arise internally and be experienced, but to not act out of a triggered place, we can still function with a sense of strength that isn't anger, but still deals with a situation from a place of strength. Anger is a distortion of that that comes through the ego. So that's more how I hold it. That's more how it is in the diamond approach and is more similar to Vajrayana, but it's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same. Yeah. yeah, I think that if we were to take the extreme version of an interpretation of a Vajrayana view, it could sound like somebody's just acting out in every bad way and being really <laughs> harmful. And somehow that's all this deep teaching or whatever. And as we both know, there's some teachers who claim that's what they're up to while they're causing tremendous harm. And that doesn't work either. That's also unwise. However, the fact that we are human beings means that, as far as I'm concerned anyway, we're going to have the, always going to have the full palette of emotions. But, and this is one of the things that can change, right? Our relationship to the emotion changes, number one. And that means that how we express that, and even if we express it at all externally, changes deeply and becomes much more healthy and wise and helpful to others, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. That's how I see it as well. Well, I was just going to say, expecting that it will never arise again, that's unrealistic. And it's really more about when something like anger does arise, what do we do with it? And how do we orient towards it? Is it identified with? Is it acted out? Or is it not identified with? Because we know what we are at our core is deeper. And that gives us enough space to work with it wisely. Yeah, exactly. Now, I didn't let you get to the fourth category. By asking my question, I kind of cut you off. So how would you talk about the fourth category? Yeah, so the fourth category, the self-transcending category, would include things like 
Chaitanya Pasana and Theravadan Buddhism, Rigpa and Chan, Mahamudra practice, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, where we're really seeing those phenomena as empty and not what we are. And that to me is the more advanced orientation towards something like, say, anger arising. To me, there's a danger. If we're seeing it all as empty, there are ways that I perceive some traditions come at the emptiness from a mental, more head-based experience that isn't really seeing the emptiness in it experientially. And I don't know if that's part of what causes the bypassing, but there's a way where the danger, in my view, of orienting too soon to something like anger as empty, that can then be taken by the ego to say, well, it's all empty, so it doesn't really matter if I take the money from this company or whatever. It's all empty anyway, and there's no me anyway. So there's no me to actually take the blame or credit from what's happening. So it's kind of doesn't matter what's happening. You know, I mean, that's an extreme example, but to me, that's the danger of applying that as a starting point before really digesting the material in a way where we're really inside of it. You know, there's a difference to me coming at something that's arising and having an intellectual view that, well, it's all empty, so it's kind of irrelevant that can lead to it becoming suppressed in the unconscious and then acted out in other ways. Yeah, or as you're saying, simply disregarded, even though it's completely expressed. Right. <laughs> my impression of some horrible behavior, that was empty anyway, so it doesn't matter. Of course, that's the very definition of bypassing. Yeah, I mean, I thought about this, just like at a really practical level, the teachers who slept with numerous students who do it chronically, like how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of times did they have the thought that they had in their consciousness and if they're really awake they would be knowing what their thoughts were i want to sleep with that student you know before they acted on it and they never did anything with that they never thought maybe they should talk to somebody else saying gosh i'm having an urge to sleep with a student could you help me work with this you know, so that's to me where just seeing it as empty can lead to that kind of thing where then people do end up acting it out because they're not actually digesting it. That digesting to me has to be done from the inside of whatever it is, not just from sort of a view of, well, it's empty and there's no me anyway, so it's irrelevant. Yeah, it's so funny. You're making an important distinction between the idea of emptiness and the actual, actual experience of emptiness. Right, Because if you're actually experiencing it as empty directly, it's very hard to get caught by. The grabbiness or, or Velcro quality of that thought or the emotions or whatever it is, is almost zero when you're really seeing, really experiencing, really feeling the emptiness of it. I mean, to me, that's one of the ways you know that it's genuine is that the reactivity around it is very reduced. Whereas right. just the idea of it is almost harmful. If it's just an idea of emptiness, that's only going to cause trouble. So I agree with what you're saying. You don't want to bring that on as simply an idea. Yeah, 
Exactly. And that's to me where it's so wonderful that we have ways of working with things psychologically in this era. We have like the Enneagram, which I think is an amazing tool. I do teach it, even though it's not in Buddhism. I've worked with it for decades with for myself and with other people. And it's kind of an expansion of the three main defilement categories in Buddhism that can be so helpful on the spiritual path. You know, people criticize the Enneagram quite a bit for having no scientific basis. And yet, on the other hand, it's still like many of these typing systems, it does have its uses. And as you say, since it's coming from the three main categories in Eastern teaching of ignorance and grasping or craving and aversion, it has a powerful root in that kind of understanding, even if we don't have a large Western psychological basis for it. Yeah, to me, part of what makes the Enneagram useful as a spiritual tool is also being discerning about whose take on the Enneagram you're following. So some of the teachers of the Enneagram really use it as a personality tool that in some ways is just reinforcing the personality identity. Like I'm a X number, you know, I'm a seven, and it just makes people more entrenched in the personality. And therefore, I have these really fascinating qualities. (laughs) Right. So that's one way that the Enneagram is out there, that I can actually be detrimental if one is on the spiritual path, really working at thinning that. But if other takes on the Enneagram that are really using it as a spiritual tool as it was originally designed for, coming out of the, you know, Sarmoon Brotherhood in the Mideast, where it was designed as a way to understand how nine ways that consciousness turns away from the ground of being and how to use that understanding as kind of a shortcut to find your way home, to kind of see the water that we're swimming in instead of just being the fish that doesn't see the water because, you know, it's so important who we are. You know, you've got like nine basic core wounds that lead to nine different types of personality expression. But knowing what that core wound is, as you say, a shortcut to helping do the psychological cleanup that can lead to deepening of the spiritual practice. Right. Yeah. And then if somebody uses that in conjunction with what they're already seeing on the cushion as their patterns... It can become a bridge to working with that material off the cushion. So, you know, that's to me another helpful tool in working with personality material to thin out the identification with the ego self. And yet it's amazing that if you look at, you know, 10 or 20 enlightened beings, they all have very different personalities. So that's another thing that's interesting about the Enneagram is you can see that even somebody who isn't functioning from the personality and who isn't believed that's what they are, they still are very unique. So the Enneagram values the strengths that our uniqueness brings in a way that if you look at something like the defilements, they're just seen as negative. There isn't really something that's being contributed to the world through that person's uniqueness. So I I like that take on the Enneagram that it tells us both where we're caught and also the gifts that we can bring. 
Yeah, and points to the thing we've been talking about, which is that we do still want to be in the world. And to be in the world, you have to have some kind of personality or egoness, even if you don't believe it's really you. It's our way of being with others and interacting, right? There's a kind of necessary for human beings. You can't just sit there being nothing. There's always an expression. And the key is to just not believe that your identity is that expression. Right. So the Enneagram is really interesting. And of course, Madriana points to this too, that there's positive personality qualities that can be expressed very genuinely and with a lot of energy. Right. right. Yeah, that's the cool part about the uniqueness of each person. You know, the downside is the identification with the personality and the ego self. But the upside is, wow, you know, look at this contribution I can make in the world that's part of the human experience that's exciting. In your own practice, what was one of these psychological issues that you really have seen yourself come out the other side of? Yeah, well, I don't know if I talked about this last time, but I almost died at birth. Yeah. So I had a really significant birth trauma. I knew the story of it because my parents had told me. But, you know, back then they just thought babies were lumps of clay. And as long as you didn't die, who cares? You know, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So I've worked for years. I first realized that there was actually trauma there when I started doing holotropic breath work in my 20s, where a lot of people experience their birth. And I really got in touch with, wow, there's some stuff here, you know, and through lots of different methodologies, rebirthing, and then somatic experiencing and Buddhism, a lot of meditation practices and understandings that Buddhism helped a lot, as well as the diamond approach. So there was a lot of material that just now, like at a cellular level, because it was so physical and because I was like 30 seconds from death, from drowning, I actually was breathing in fluids. So my oh, lungs were filled with fluids and then I was being strangled by the cord mm. and I was breached. Wow. So you think maybe I didn't want to come out. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the things at once. <laughs> There's so much else that you could do to make that not work very well. But anyway, you know, I, I used to see that as like, feeling very victimized that this is the first experience in this existence was basically trying to be killed in three different ways as a newborn infant, you know, and it really felt very unworkable. And like, I was kind of angry at, you know, whatever forces were out there that this was my first experience. And, you know, there were effects of that, both physical and psychological. And, you know, over the years of working with the, the psychological material, the terror that sort of got trapped in pre-verbally in the body of something like that, it's a pretty hard thing to have to re-experience. I can imagine. That must just be really intense. Oh, yeah, really, really intense. And even when all the psychological material was gone, I could feel that my body held it. There was a place where the survival instinct in my body, and I'm talking very, very subtle, like physical contractions, that would then trigger personality material if there was a sense of threat. 
So, you know, this is where I really appreciate all of the progress that's been made with trauma work because you were talking about it being somatic, Michael, and I can totally vouch for that, that at some level, especially, you know, pre-verbal material, that's like if you're processing it, you know, a newborn infant or an infant in the womb doesn't have words that go into memory. So it's all processed somatically. It's really just been like in the last six months that even like the tissues of the body have let go of that. Wow. And there's a feeling like in the diamond approach, we work a lot with the instinctual drives being self-preservation. And then from there comes the sexual instinct. And that also includes one-on-one relationships and the social instinct to be part of the tribe. Because if you were kicked out of the tribe, your chances of survival were a lot lower. And then the fourth instinctual drive that some of us feel being the enlightenment drive, that drive for awakening. And, you know, not all humans are in touch with that, but a lot of us on the path are. And what's happened over that I can really feel over the years, you know, we all start out pretty much completely identified with the lower three drives. And as the spiritual path has deepened over the years, I can feel that those drives have come into service of the enlightenment drive, that basically that enlightenment drive is over the other three drives instead of just being one of the four. Mm. And because, you know, that survival sort of mechanisms was such a fundamental layer of the psyche that I have, you know, developed as a child, it had to get to the level of the body letting go of that to really be where it doesn't get activated. That's a tremendously fundamental level of change that you're describing, right? Where it goes right down into the actual cellular level of the body all the way. That's very, very huge amount of change you're describing. Yeah. I imagine its effects on your life are pretty dramatic. It's been a lot, you know, it's been a journey of about 30 years of knowing about it and working with it through lots of different modalities. And, you know, there were times when really equanimity was the place to be that I just had accepted it would never really go away, you know, because I'd done so many thousands of hours on the cushion knowing, feeling it. (laughs) I mean, that may be why my concentration is so good. Because, you know, for years, I I remember the first time I went to a doctor for like neck pain, I think I was 11. Yeah, so to answer your question, that would be something that I feel has been worked through for years that feels like it's let go, just really within like the last year, the the last of the physical components of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, another area is that my enneotype, has to do with being the helper and so how my sense of that function has evolved over the years from being what i would say in my 20s codependent you know my first husband was a non-drinking alcoholic and you know i didn't know anything about codependency and so on going from that to then doing work where basically i was helping other people develop and being identified with that at a level that wasn't necessarily giving me freedom to now where I feel like 
there isn't really even a me that's doing it. Whatever benefit happens for others through this location and body, is, it's all coming from the ground. So there is really a sense of being able to take credit for anything. So you describing the major shift from being caught by or ruled by the psychology to actually transcending it entirely and yet still allowing it to express through action, right? Right, right. And that's what I was saying right before you asked me that. We were talking about the Enneagram and the gifts, that both the ego identifications that can be quite unhealthy, you know, like in the Rizzo and Hudson Enneagram typology, they give levels, which is one of the things I really like about how they do it. There's Sandra Matries and Hamid Ali's A.H. Almas, their take on the Enneagram really is using it as a spiritual tool. But seeing that same thing that becomes an egoic identification that can cause suffering, can cause us a lot of success as an ego, you know, I'm now a healthy, successful ego. And then going beyond that to where one can still function doing that same kind of activity, but there isn't a sense of uh, me doing it or of, of owning that functioning. You know, if somebody was to look from the outside, it might not even look that different in terms of like what a person is doing. Yeah, and they're still going to be recognizable as the same person from the outside. And I don't just mean physically, but of course, in their behavior and so on, there's enough resonance that they don't seem like an entirely different human being, of course. And yet, as you say, the internal experience can be radically transformed. And of course, the quality of the external behavior becomes radically transformed as well into something that's largely and almost totally helpful. Tina, I'm just noticing the time and that's all we have time for today. But as usual, it's been really a deep pleasure and an honor to talk with you. Yeah, it's been a delight to be here, Michael. Thank you so much for the invitation. and I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Have a great one. Okay, you too. it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat if you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. 
I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.